we're going to continue in 1 Corinthians today. You remember that last week we spent most of the time talking about tongues. And a a quick recap of that is, of course, where we land, as you know very well in this church. We believe that tongues are indeed for today. There was a, I may have played a clip a while back. If I did, it was on a Wednesday, but it was a very uh, irritating piece I found on YouTube. And I typed it in. Uh, I I wasn't trying to figure out where I stood. I knew where I stood. I just kind of see what, every now and then I'll type something into a Google search or YouTube or something to see what kind of results come up. And I typed in the question, are tongues for today? And one of the first things that that came up is a panel discussion between two ministers that I was familiar with and one that I wasn't. But the two I was familiar with, I was very, uh, I'm still very fond of their teaching and their gifts Kind of didn't know where they stood on that particular issue, but I knew that I wouldn't, they certainly, I would not classify them as charismatics. Uh, But they're both scholars enough, uh, I respect them both enough as scholars to think that they would at least be too smart to be cessationist. Okay, you know what I'm saying? Uh, There there are people who I've known and, and, uh, you know, fellowshiped with over the years who, because they have a high respect for the Word of God, and, and they are such honest readers of the Bible. They have to recognize that tongues and all of the gifts are for today. Uh, doesn't mean they ever exercise them or flow in them. They just don't argue against them doctrinally. And this is pretty much where these two guys, uh, and, and, the, and it's all three of them pretty much came down on the side of, uh, of that. Except what was interesting is the question was, are they for today? And none of them even answered that. They, started, they spent their time talking about what is it really? What was it on the day of Pentecost? Making snide little jokes uh, about how it has been misused and abused and confused people over the years. But never even gave their opinion on whether it was for today. It was one of the most disappointing things I've ever seen. And, uh, and it's really a shame. Because it's a yes or no question. <laughs> And, uh, and, of course, we believe it is. And uh, the thing is, there is a, uh, there's a passage, and we read it last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that says, uh, or in 13, that says uh, tongues will cease, along with other gifts of the Spirit. But the clear meaning is that tongues, along with miracles, other supernatural manifestations and gifts, will no longer be necessary when this age is over and we are face-to-face with the giver of these gifts. That's what it says. When that which is perfect has come. And when is the when? When, uh, when we are face to face, when we are known, when we know as well as we are known, when we see as clearly as we are seen. We see now as through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Then we will have no need of tongues, interpretation, and prophecy because, again, we're going to be in the presence of the giver of all these gifts. Now, why is it that people want to fight it? Because it's messy. Can it be, can not just tongues, but the exercise of the gifts be messy sometimes? It absolutely can. If you think it can't, you have not been around enough. I have seen, uh, I've seen the gifts misused, abused, stumbled over. Guess what? We, God is perfect. The Holy Spirit is perfect. His gifts are good. We are imperfect. We still miss it from time to time. It's as simple as that. Let me ask you something. This is a, uh, an illustration that, uh, I'm not saying I invented it, but I, I didn't learn it from anybody, and I actually 
asked a guy to write a little uh, drama about it back in Farmer City. This was a number of years ago, and it turned out really nice. I, I need to find that script. But the idea is, if I want you to picture uh, uh, people who are building a house or, or a school or a church or whatever, and, they, and they've got all these hand tools, and they know how to use them, and then they, they discover a crate uh, with a gift from the person who's commissioning the building saying, here, use these, it'll make your job easier. And they open it up, and what's in there? Power tools. And nobody's ever used them before. And there's minimal instructions. There's enough instructions in there to keep them from cutting their hand off. Uh, but, and, but there are some people who right away say, no, we've never used those before. And somebody says, well, look, I've been reading. People have been using them for years, and look what they're able to do with them. Yeah, but not us. We're supposed to, we're supposed to stick with our hammers and our hand saws and things like that. Well, you'd be a fool not to use the gifts, uh, these tools, that are there to make your job easier, right? This is what the, the, the gifts of the Spirit are like. They might seem strange and new to somebody who's not been exposed to them before, but they're not. God didn't give them to us to confuse us and make things more difficult. It's supposed to make our church and our life as believers in the assembly more vibrant to equip us and build us up. If we are not using everything that God gave us, then we are not achieving or growing into everything, everywhere that God wants us to be. We're not supposed to be doing this without the Holy Spirit and his gifts. Yeah, it gets a little messy sometimes, but come on. All right? It's, it's, like, it's like anything else, even if you eliminate the gifts. Is the pastor going to misspeak from time to time? Is the choir or the praise and worship team going to miss a note from time to time? Yeah. Get over it and move on. And thank God for the gifts that are there, right? God is still perfect. We also talked about how 12, chapter 12, which is about the gifts of the Spirit, 13, which is the love chapter, and 14, which is about, mostly about tongues and prophecy, these all form a seamless discussion on the gifts in general and on tongues in particular. And I said that, and I say it again, to combat the notion that 13 sits there in the middle to remind people that the gifts and tongues are unimportant and the only thing that's important is love. 13 is there, the love chapter is there, so that we can properly gauge whether or not we are using the gifts correctly. That's a, it's as simple as here's what the gifts are, here's how you know if you're doing it right. Is your goal to edify, to lift up, to love the people in the room with you? If your goal is to lift yourself up and show how gifted you are, you're doing it wrong. Do it because you love people and want to see them edified, right? So let's actually read on today because uh, there's, there's a, a few more details in uh, chapter 14 that will, I think, make some of this clear. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. This is, again, this sort of without us being able to, to see it or, or to read the letter that Paul is responding to, he's, he's coming against this notion that everybody... Number one, that, uh, that everybody is speaking in tongues. Number two, that everybody is speaking in tongues at the same time. He said, let there be two or three and one at a time. And let there be an interpretation for these tongues, okay? Uh, if there is no interpreter, verse 28, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one that you all may learn and all may be encouraged. 
and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Let me say a couple things about this passage before we move on. Let me uh, read verse 33 here. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Uh, there's some specific guidance here, obviously. And uh, the, when he talks about you can all prophesy, he's not saying, I don't think, and I think it's pretty clear, everybody in the room should prophesy every time we're together. He's saying, I think it's another way of saying well, what I said either last Sunday or, or two Sundays ago, which is the best gift is the one that's needed for that moment. And just because you spoke in tongues last week doesn't mean you can't prophesy this week. And let me just say this about prophecy. We have a very uh, narrow and limited view or definition of prophecy, and we hear the word prophecy. We think it usually means, thus saith the Lord, this is going to happen tomorrow or in the next week or in the next year. And the more specific the prophecy is, the more exciting it is. We see it as, as uh, uh, telling the future. Uh, and, and certainly, in the Old and New Testament, we see examples of that. We see prophets speaking of future events. But also, as we clearly saw as we were reading uh, through the Old Testament, the prophet's main job was simply as a proclaimer of righteousness. He didn't spend, the, the, the average prophet did not spend most of his ministry telling the future. He simply spoke authoritatively on God's behalf. The prophet's main job was simply to represent God to the people. And uh, I'll just give you an example in my own ministry. And I, I don't know if I shared this. Uh, I've, I know I've shared it with people. I don't know if I've shared it from the pulpit. Uh, but since I can't remember if I have, that means probably most of you can't remember me doing it. Uh, but Joe Morris, remember Joe Morris? Uh, I haven't had him in in a while, but he was here. Uh, I didn't tell this story last week, did I, about him speaking about me prophesying? Okay, and again, if I did, you forgot, and I did too. So it's all like first time for all of us. He, he was here, and, uh, and he's got a pretty dynamic ministry. And he's, you know, he speaks very boldly in uh, words of wisdom, words of knowledge. And, uh, and he had me come up, had me actually stand and come up and stand before him and began to speak some, some things over me. This was back when I was a youth pastor. In fact, it was in the fairly early days of my being a youth pastor, in the very early 2000s. And... Uh, and he said, you're, there's going to be a change in your ministry. And you are going to begin to minister prophetically. And, I rem- and he said a few other things. But that was the, the core of what he said. And I remember thinking at the time, I don't want a ministry like yours. I want a ministry like Bob Yanyan's. I don't want to be... Uh, I don't want to be a Benny Hinn. I want to be another... Uh, 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 again, Bob Yanyan. I want to be... I'm a teacher. I knew what my gift was. He wasn't saying I was going to start ministering like he did or, or anybody else with a prophetic ministry. I'm not sure he knew what he was saying. He was speaking, I believe, uh, as, as God gave him this unction. But I began to see, and you have to understand, when you look back, I look back, you don't care, but other than to let me illustrate this, when I prepared my messages for uh, youth, for any other message, any other opportunity I had, I would spend hours crafting the message, writing it out, practicing it, rehearsing it. And then the, 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 the longer I, I did it, especially once I was doing it on a regular basis, you know, Canaan lands where I really had to learn to press into some things. And I've told you that story before, but I'll, I'll leave that alone for now. Um, 
But I found that no matter how much time I spent preparing a message, and this started to happen episodically, and then it became more and more normal, I would find that once I got up in the pulpit, I either just ended up straying clear away from my notes because God was taking me a different direction, or right in the middle of my notes, he would give me illustrations or illumination. And to this day... At least half, sometimes as much as 80% of what I share from the pulpit has nothing to do with what's in my notes. I know essentially where I'm going and what I'm going to say. Sometimes I have a I've got two and a half pages of notes today. Sometimes I come up here with a card, and I just know that the gift is always going to be there. I know that God is going to be speaking through me, and it's exciting for me. Because at least half of my sermon I'm hearing for the first time when I'm delivering it to you. And I promise you it's not laziness. I still spend hours in preparation, but most of that time is simply reading, thinking, praying. Sometimes I don't put pen to paper until Sunday morning. But by then I essentially know where I'm going. But again, things come out of my mouth in the middle of this sermon that I had not planned to say. I believe that is a form of prophecy. That is speaking prophetically because it is coming from God through me to you. Okay? Now, but Scott, sometimes you say stupid stuff. That part's not God. That's me. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Just like say, Listen, you've heard the stories. I'll tell them again because uh, they never get old. Uh, somebody, you know, you get some guy, thus saith the Lord. You know, the, remember the... Uh, the <laughs> Remember in the, uh, where is it, where uh, so it's uh, uh, Ichabod. Remember, remember what, the, what, the, what the name Ichabod means? Uh, when, uh, when they found out the ark had been taken by the Philistines and then this, uh, this son was born and named him Ichabod. Why? Because it means no glory. The glory has departed. And so you've heard preachers say over the years that they might as well change their name to the first church of Ichabod because there's no glory there anymore. Well, somebody stood up prophetically and said, Thus saith the Lord, I shall write upon thy, uh, on, on thy building the word Michelob. Because <laughs> he couldn't remember the name Ichabod. He wasn't trying to be funny. And, and somebody else said, Yea, as I told my servant Moses when I told him to build the ark and to get the animals on it. And he keeps talking. He says, Wait a minute. Wait a minute, saith the Lord. I made a mistake. That wasn't Moses. That was Noah. Blah, 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 blah. Well, again, God could have very clearly been talking to him about Noah. And he thought maybe he just made the mistake. Oh, sorry about that. God told me Noah. I said Moses. But to say God, enter all. Thus saith the Lord, I made a mistake. No, he didn't. I've heard some other things <laughs> that I probably won't share. <laughs> but people do these things, and it sounds a little bit silly, okay? Uh, and there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it, but there's not a step-by-step, look, here's how to do tongues. It gives us, look, do two or three, do them one at a time, let there be an interpretation. Also, the prophet, spirit of the uh, uh, prophet is subject to the prophet. That's interesting, too. Well, the way we do things here, as, you, uh, as most of you notice, if you feel like you've got a word, a prophetic word or a tongue or interpretation or a tongue, we, and what we ask you to do is come to me, come to Pastor Mike and say, I think I've got something. Now, sometimes, depending on what's on my heart, I might say, not now. I don't know how many of you uh, have ever you've seen somebody come up here, whisper in my ear and walk back. 
I hope you don't think, ooh, pastor shot him down. That's not how it works at all. It might just be, no, look, we are going a different direction right now. Or maybe they come up here to say, hey, Pastor Scott, I noticed when you were coming in, your pants were unzipped. You might try to zip those up before, <laughs> before you get into the pulpit. You don't know what they're doing, all right? So don't ever assume anything. But if you've got something, don't just rush the stage. And don't shout it out from your seat. Because if you've got something, we want everybody to hear it. So come up here, tell me you've got something. Sometimes I might say, hey, give me a little idea of where you're going. I don't want it to steal my sermon, if that's what it is. And I don't want it to contradict what I'm talking about. Uh, but most of the time, give you the opportunity to share that. Okay? And again, there's nothing in the Bible that says that's how to do it. But we're going to read here in just a little bit where it says, let all things be done decently and in order. And in a building like this, in a crowd like this, we think that's an orderly way of handling it. Because otherwise things can get... Uh, a little, uh, little out of hand. Now, uh, don't use the fact that we allow or encourage even the operation of gifts like that. Uh, the the uh, manifestation of prophecy, the word of knowledge, is not a time to preach your hobby doctrine. We had a guy in another church that I will, I will not name the guy or give you any more details other than to say, uh, and let me start by saying this. I've gotten a lot of sermons while listening to other people preach. And it's not that I'm copying down their sermon. I, I can't tell you how many times it happens. And a lot of you, I'm sure, have experienced something similar. You'll hear something or see a scripture referred to. And as you're reading it, something completely different goes off in your mind. It's like, this is not what the pastor's talking about, but suddenly I realize something. So you scribble some notes maybe, and I've done that. I'll scribble two pages of notes because of something completely different, all right? That's for me, or that's for a future, future date. We had a, there was a guy in another church who would do this, and he would end up scribbling something all through church, and then afterwards come up with a word from the Lord. And he'd say, and he'd start off by saying, oh, you're just like Pastor Scott was talking about, and then he'd say something completely different. And I'd be sitting there going, I didn't say anything like that. But he's not doing a word from the Lord. He's sharing a devotional. Yeah. And he finally kind of had to pull him aside and say, you know what? This, this, is not what a, this is not prophecy. This is not word of knowledge. This is not word of wisdom. This is, this is not tongues and interpretation. This is you sharing what's on your heart. And it's good. This is just not, you're getting up to preach your little mini sermon after I preach my sermon. And he wasn't offended, you know, just... Also, he didn't stop doing it. So I left and came here. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, so don't preach your hobby doctrine and don't take over the service. Uh, another thing I've seen happen, uh, and this, this will happen. Maybe God gives you, this has happened many times here. Somebody, uh, I have a word for healing. Uh, maybe I've got, there's three things God laid on my mind. Somebody's got this, somebody's got this, somebody's got that. And the way we've operated, uh, we've kind of operated on the assumption, you know, if God gives you that word, he's probably ready to also use you in the gift of healing in that moment. Again, just like the gift of tongues is probably not permanently endowed, the gift of healing likewise, but it's there for that moment. You come up with a word for healing, we're probably going to let you pray for the sick. All right? But now keep in mind, we have a church service, and there might be 200 people here, and 30 people might come up if it's a general call for healing. All right? And so we've had somebody come up with a very clear word for healing. God wants to do a work right now. He's de he desires uh, hands to be laid on you, so come up here now. And maybe it's like, and specifically for this. And so this person who has just delivered a great word is maybe not accustomed to ministering to lines of people, begins to pray. 
And the next thing you know, they've prayed for the same person for five minutes. Well, we've got 30 people standing up here. That's not going to work. So you can't take over. If, if you have a gift, you have a word, you have an unction, you're, we are not going to let you take over the service. Now, if God clearly leans on me to say, hey, you know what, give it over to this guy, give it over to that, it's, just, it's not what we are inclined to do. Pray for the, and I just go by this. What do you see Jesus doing? I, ne- I can't think of an instance in where Jesus healed somebody where he labored over them in prayer. He healed multitudes. He couldn't possibly have spent that much time. I mean, even these dramatic, I'm not, you know, people came to him with all manner of sicknesses and diseases and illnesses. Everything, I'm sure, from a a sore finger to a fever to a a limp or whatever, to things like leprosy and blindness and dumbness. And the most time I see him spending uh, is this. (laughs) Go wash. Everybody else, I imagine, it was just like, hey, you know what? Be healed, be healed, be healed, be healed. All they, man, the, the lady who, all she had to do was touch the hem of his garment. She didn't need a sermon. She didn't need uh, tongues prayed over her. Now, again, it's not that we can't spend more time than that. But if God gives you a word for healing, how much time does, who's doing the healing? It's God, right? Nothing about the power of your touch. Got to wait till the batteries recharge for each person. We turn this into something spooky and scary. And, 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 and then what happens is people's eyes get off God in the first place. God can do it, right? And if, the, if, if his miracle healing power is there, we don't make it stronger by spending five minutes instead of five seconds. Okay? Now, and we haven't even gotten into the good part for today yet. Let me read this passage that I, that I just referred to. If we start in uh, verse 39, it says this, Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Now, that's something I'm a, I'm a uh, big fan of, but it also can be an excuse that people use to eliminate the gifts altogether. Well, we want everything to be done decently in order, so we can't have tongues, we can't have interpretation. And again, a lot of this goes back to some people have a very erroneous definition or idea of what tongues is. When you ask so many of these guys who really, I can't help but think they at least ought to know better, sometimes I suspect they do know better, but they're trusting that the people asking the question don't know better. So they can give a simple and ignorant answer, which is, well, tongues is ecstatic speech. They equate tongues to losing control and jerking and stuff like that. And, well, that's not decent. It's not in order, so it's not for the church. And, of course, we don't. Spirit of the prophet, subject to the prophets. That's why I started. That's, where I, that's what kind of got me off on that rabbit trail in the first place. The gift is there. The ability is there. It doesn't mean that God is going to take you over and thrust you into doing something that you have no control over. So we can't use it as an excuse. Somebody comes up and rushes the stage and start, or starts screaming from their seat, I can't help it. It's God doing it through me. That's what prophecy is. And he's saying, no, that's subject to you. You're still the vessel. You, and it's just like tongues. You know, you don't have to deliver it. God is not going to force your mouth open and force the breath out. You have to speak as he gives you the utterance. So you can control it, all right? There was a, a funny story Dad tells about his Rama days when uh, they've got, I'm assuming they still do it. In second year, you, you, uh, you have to deliver two messages to your class. This is, this is your lab, all right? 
So he had two like 10 minute sermons and uh, they have a timer because, you know, they don't want anybody to get in they make sure it's long enough, but they also want to make sure you don't take over the class. They've got, you know, how many hundred students to get through. And these guys in dad's class would just get the preach on them and they'd start, you know, they're trying to imitate their fail, trying to be the next Copeland or the next Hagen or somebody and they're going and then somebody gives them the, the little sign, you got two minutes left. And I remember dad telling about this guy, you might as well just shut that thing off, man. The anointing's just dripping over me. I can't stop. I couldn't stop if I wanted to. And everybody's like, yeah, right, right, you know. And well, they, you don't, they, they don't play that anymore. They just, they will shut you down, man. <laughs> I'm thinking of another story, that, but I, I shared it in the men's group, and they were a little offended that I shared it there, so I'm sure not going to share it here. But it was, a, but it was funny. <laughs> but, all right. Now, uh, unless you think I'm a chicken, let's go back to the part I skipped. Yeah, verse 34. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but they are to be submissive. Uh, I hear women talking right now. (laughs) They are to be submissive, as the law also says, and if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it only only you that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things I write to you are commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Okay, anything else we need to talk about? Can we move on to chapter? Look, this is a contentious passage, isn't it? And there are one or two like it. First Timothy, uh, especially, where it says, I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And like it or not, there is not universal agreement on what these passages mean. Okay? Hardliners say, look, here's what it says. No woman should ever teach at all. But that seems unreasonable. And even people who say that will, don't really have a problem with women teaching children in Sunday school. That's not their children. We have to start with what Scripture says, not with our experience. But you know what? Let me chase this rabbit for a second. You know, I guess that's all we're doing this morning anyway. I was... Uh, listening to Janet Parshall the other day, and she was reading off of a brochure, or actually I think a website, from some uh, ELCA church out east. And uh, the female pastor uh, was talking about, uh, or writing about the f- tight bonds she had forged with the LGBT community uh, in her town, or in her area. And they celebrated that at that church. They had ministries specifically geared not just not to deal with it, but to celebrate it. They had on their staff listed a minister of fabulousness and said, and this, is, this is why I bring it up, when, as, of course, she's been challenged for her stance on certain issues. And, uh, of course, she defines herself as very progressive, and her, state, her response was, any doctrinal stance that is hurtful in any way to anyone has to be examined and changed or eliminated. That's starting on the wrong end of this equation. You don't judge the truth of a doctrine by how it affects the hearer. You have to start with what doctrine says. 
Now, if it seems hurtful, we certainly can examine it and say, is there a way of reading this without straying from the authority of Scripture that might not be so hurtful? And sometimes it's not. Sometimes, guess what? Truth hurts. I would love to believe that I am not a dirty, filthy, rotten sinner without the grace of God. I'd like to think I'm better than a lot of people. But in God's eyes, I'm not, except for the blood of Jesus Christ. The, uh, boy, I've got to be really careful about this. I get it. We have to do a better job of communicating to the world that it is not our mission to condemn anyone. Our core mission as a church, and I'm not just talking about this church, I'm talking about the church, is not to point fingers and point out how evil everything is. We are to preach the good news, but we have to recognize that part of what makes the, the good news good is that we, all of us, are dead in our sins without it. It's life-saving. That's why it's good news. It's too easy to be self-righteous by pointing out the sins of others. But the solution is not to embrace any particular sin or sin in general. And let's face it, the two big social issues, as we are well aware, especially in in an election uh, season, the two big social issues for most evangelicals are the issue of abortion and the issue of homosexuality. How do we respond to these sins as a church? Now listen, most of you know Riley's story. Riley's birth mom had already made the decision to abort him. And it was due to being mugged, unhurt, but mugged and and had her money taken away from her uh, that she couldn't afford it. And she had to look for other solutions. And she wound up going to the Pregnancy Resource Center and they told her about this awesome uh, other option, uh, this, uh, this alternative plan called adoption, which she had never considered before. So this is how we end up with Riley. Now, I, I, am, I am a pro-life guy, 100% pro-life. But I look at that, and when I think of Riley's birth mom, I don't look at her and think, what an evil woman. How could she think about murdering the baby that's inside her? That's not what I think at all. I'm angry at a society that has somehow convinced us there are only two options. You can wallow in poverty doing a job you're not equipped to do and doom yourself and your child to failure, or you can kill it. When there's an obvious or, or an option that should be obvious out there, you can find a couple that would desperately love to raise that baby, and you can be that couple's hero by letting us do that. It's a loving option. It's a humbling option. But that's not, it's not even on the table for so many people. So we don't. So here we go. Why did I bring that up? Because we can absolutely be hardline and absolute in our opposition to abortion without ever being hateful toward those who have had them or consider them. It is in a why, and, and most people, once you explain it that way, even if they disagree with your stand, They'll get it, but they won't get it, or they refuse to get it if you take the exact same attitude about homosexuality. Look, we love everybody, but the Bible's clear on that particular issue in terms of the activity. The Bible's not going to condemn you for feelings, 
But if you embrace those feelings and say, this is what I'm going to pursue, this is who I am, and identify with that, that's sin. Now, it doesn't mean we hate you. It just means we can't embrace it. We're not going to celebrate that any more than we would celebrate any other sin. And, you know, churches have recovery groups uh, or groups that, you know, people who struggle with the same thing. And what are they for? They're to get free or to celebrate the freedom from these things. But the danger with groups like that, by the way, if we're not careful, is we begin to identify too much with the failures that brought us together in the first place and not enough with the Lord and Savior who delivered us from those things. There comes a time when I think we should celebrate the day we graduate from groups like that and leave that crap buried. All right. Sorry. If you start by looking at people who are hurt by certain doctrines and change the doctrine, you're doing it backwards. So we don't say, well, since this passage is offensive to women, we're just going to change it and say women can teach. We don't understand it, but we know women can teach. We're just going to do it. But let's face it. We do have to bring our experiences and our knowledge into this. And something I have seen, and most of you have seen, is that there are women out there who are clearly gifted teachers. One of the all-time greats and all-time favorites at Ramah was Patsy Caminetti. And you look at her and say, all right. Now, here's somebody who is, there's no way she, what she's sharing with us is human wisdom. I am being fed, I am growing, I am filling up notebooks, I have preached things that I still remember her teaching me. And I'm going to say, but she really shouldn't be teaching me because she's a woman? That she can't minister in the church publicly because she's a woman? Or is it possible? Because I look at it, because where I stand out now, I say, all right, look, this I am quite sure is a gift from God. Why would God gift her to do that and say, no, you can't in church? which is the passage we're looking at. Let a woman keep silent in church. So is there a number way, uh, is there a, a way we might be misreading this? Now, I do not have an answer that is 100% ironclad. I can tell you what I think. There are a number of interpretations. One is simply, look, it's cultural. Paul was talking to the people of his day uh, in a way that they would understand and respect, and, and it took into account all the cultural norms and everything else. And that's really too broad but there's more merit to that answer than you might think. One thing is that women and men did not sit together in church. They sat on separate sides, separate sections. And one of the things that Paul might very well have been addressing here is, look, when somebody is prophesying or giving a tongue or teaching or preaching, if you've got a question about it, if you don't understand what's going on, wait until after church and ask your husband at home. Instead of, what's going on? I disagree with that. What's that person doing up there prophesying? Did you hear what he said? Did, does that make sense to you? They're discussing it right there in the assembly among themselves. And Paul's just saying, shut up in church. Don't have these discussions. Wait till you're home. You, and you can't ask your husband now. You're not going to yell, hey, hey, Henry, what's he doing up there? What's that prophecy mean? So instead, they're talking among themselves. And Paul's saying, don't. Don't talk among yourselves. You can, you can ask your husband about it when you get home. I think that's, the, that, that's one of the main thrusts. It might be as simple as that. This is another, and this doesn't preclude that, that explanation, uh, that the emphasis is simply on leadership. Paul's not saying that women can't minister or teach. There's that stinking pin again. Uh, or operate in the gifts. He's simply saying they can't exercise apostolic authority over men. And we, uh, many have extrapolated this to say that uh, 
that uh, women can teach, but they shouldn't be pastors. And that's kind of where uh, a, lot of, a lot of us land. Interestingly, Neil Childs, our friend in Niger, rejects that. Uh, you know, here's the guy who's planted 40-plus churches, maybe closer to 50 now, got a Bible school and uh, all sorts of stuff over there in Niger. But he said, man, if it weren't for female pastors, they wouldn't have pastors in a lot of these places, especially when they're first starting out. But in that culture, too, women are running the society. Uh, you, you got a culture over there where the men just lay around and they, they exercise their authority that by being served. The women do all the manual labor. The women raise the children. The women conduct the business. So they're sort of running things anyway. Uh, but they're also, because they're industrious and more energetic, they're the first ones to respond to the gospel. And you get a spirit-filled, fired-up, born-again Nigerian woman. Uh, she will take leadership and start the and, and pastor serve as a functioning pastor until a man will answer that call. Okay, so I don't think it, it needs to be something as black and white as that. The bottom line is this. Let me say this. The bottom line for me, and you are absolutely free to disagree, is that women are clearly gifted to teach, so they should teach. But also that God has an order. It's an order, not a ranking. An order in the home and in the church. Headship in the home clearly belongs to the husband. And I believe it's reasonable that that order is reflected in the church. Please remember this. This has nothing to do with the issue of superiority and inferiority. As far as our essential worth and dignity, there is no male nor female in Jesus Christ. But God has ordained an order. We're kind of back to the power tool illustration. Which is a better tool? Tell me this. Which is a better tool? A circular saw or an impact wrench? Which is better? Depends on what the job is, right? God has designed us to fulfill certain roles and duties. And it really, women and men have equality of essence but different roles. Also, please remember this. And praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. I'm about to wrap this up. Do you remember that passage on head coverings earlier in this book? All sorts of fun little passages, right? But do you remember the head coverings issue? And one of the things that we were talking about was that in the culture at this time, there was this blurring of lines between male and female across the board. It was a decadent society, and they were expressing themselves literally by men growing out their hair to look like women, dressing like women, and women cutting their hair to look like men. He wasn't saying that long hair is always good for women and and short hair is always bad. He was saying, look at what's going on. Women be women, men be men. And I think a lot of what he's saying here has to do with that. Let's keep those lines clear. There are men and there are women. And let's have defined roles for them. Not that men are up here and women are down here. But that there are uh, specific lanes for us to walk in. So again, that that kind of flows into the cultural argument. How do do we uh, land on something like this? And where do we, how can we move from that kind of, Tension. I love where he goes right next. Right after he says what he says about the women, and then he says, uh, uh, Desire earnestly to prophesy, do not forbid to speak in tongues, but let all things be done decently in order. The very next thing he says is, verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, 
which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you are also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. In other words, look, these things are important. The gifts are important. Us uh, walking and serving in the roles that God has ordained are important. But let me remind you what's important here. Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. And he says that, just said it right there, that it's believing that that saves you. It's not prophecy. It's not tongues. It's not teaching or not teaching, depending on whether you're a man or a woman. It's do you believe that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again to save you from your sin? Have you expressed that belief? Have you expressed your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ? If you have, praise God, you are saved. Saved from what? You're saved from hell. You're saved from sin. You're saved from sin. You are, salvation is a big word. You're actually saved from sickness. You're saved from poverty. You're saved from all the curse of the law and every manifestation of it. We continue to express and speak out our faith for these things to bring them manifestly into our life. But at the end of the day, I just sleep better knowing that if today's my last, I wake up in heaven tomorrow. That's an important thing to know. Do you know it? Because if you don't, you can. We're going to sing a song here in a minute after I pray. As soon as they start singing, if you want to, you want to be secure in that knowledge, you want to make sure heaven is your home, you want Jesus, to, you want to declare and confess Jesus Christ as your Lord, come up here and let me pray for you. Everybody else, can we recognize that, that, that man, even if we don't understand everything perfectly about some of these trickier passages, that we can still love each other, we can still minister together, and we can still focus on the things that really, really matter more than anything else. That there is a gospel to be lived, a gospel to be preached in a society that desperately needs to see it lived and hear it preached.